Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. We reach week six, our final week of the series. I, I just, I think the older I get, the faster time goes. It's amazing. We have blown through six weeks of the lamenting Psalms, and uh, I, I've gotten so much feedback. You know, the series that I think you, you may not respond to all that well, and this was one of them, I thought, I don't know that they're going to get what I'm trying to do here. Um, you guys have really been very um, vocal about how this has helped you. I, I, I'm just, so many comments, text messages, I get emails, it's just been a lot. And um, today is the last of these, and I think one of the reasons that I was a little worried about this series is because I knew it was going to be dark. This is, we've talked about a lot of dark stuff. This is, you know, if you allow it to be, it can become depressing, um, but there is, you know, there's there's goodness in it, too, as we're going to see today. We've been looking at the Psalms of Lament, and one of the things that we've discovered in our time together is that the Psalms are really songs for life. That's really what they are. They are songs for life. Uh, whatever your situation right now, there is probably a psalm, there is a psalm that speaks to your particular situation. Probably a better way to put it is that there's probably a psalm that gives you the words to be able to speak back to God the things that are, that are in your heart and, and in your life and going on in your world. Um, this is probably why the Psalms have always been so central to Christian devotion, and it's been that way for thousands and thousands of years. If we were to go back in time to, say, the, the 16th century uh, Germany, or if we were to go to 8th century France, or if we were to go to 4th century Greece, what you would find is one of the most consistent patterns of devotion it would be both corporate and, and personal, you would find people saying the Psalms. Not as Bible reading, but as prayers. Things that they would say to God. This is the backbone of spiritual Christianity. This is, you, you know, you find people like Sir Thomas Aquinas, uh, St. Augustine, John Calvin, Martin Luther, saying the Psalms regularly. It was a, it's a part of our Christian tradition. If you were to go back to our Pilgrim Fathers, they, the first book that they printed in America was printed in 1640. It was called The Whole Book of Psalms. It was America's first book. And it was printed by the Pilgrim Fathers for the express purpose of being able to pray the Psalms on a regular basis. Not only is this the first book that was ever printed in America, it is also the most expensive. A copy of the Book of Psalms the whole book of Psalms was recently sold for $14 million. Yeah. The tradition of saying the Psalms goes back to biblical times. The Jewish people would say Psalms over their meals. They, they would say Psalms as they lay down to go to bed at night. Jesus regularly said the Psalms. We get this from the Last Supper. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now that's not talking about the latest Christian hymn like, you know, Rock of Ages or, or you know, In the Garden or, or one of those. Um, you know, those are, those are contemporary for us. I'm talking about um, the, the Psalms. That's what they were singing as they went out to the, uh, the Mount of Olives. Jesus' brother, James, said this, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. And the word that gets used there literally is the word to psalm, which means to sing or to say 
the Psalms. So these have been given to us, not just for us to read, but for us to say and to be able to say back to God. Paul, in that famous passage from Ephesians, said, Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Those three expressions, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, are the three different words you get in the book of Psalms to describe the different kind of songs that you find in the book. The book of Psalms is truly a book for life. God has given us these 150 psalms, poems, prayers, songs, to build in us sort of a a muscle memory. Um, Muscle memory, use this expression to see if this makes sense to you. There's a bathroom in our house that's off of the laundry room. Dee Dee never goes in there because it's it's just, it's like a man's bathroom. Just you don't want to go into a man's bathroom, but when I walk into that room, it's real tiny. Um, there's two switches. There's a there's an exhaust switch and there's a light switch, and it's not the old-fashioned um, you know light switch type. It's the kind that are like you know you just move them a little. You know what I'm talking about? You just, it's a toggle, and I can't remember the last time I walked into that room and actually looked at the light switch to make sure I was hitting it. I've done it so often that when I walk into that, I just kind of throw my hand behind me, and it always hits the right switch, and the light comes on, and I, I, don't, I don't ever look at that. It's all done with muscle memory. I think we do that with other things, too. Like, we, you do that probably, I mean, it took us a while, but when they made seatbelt laws, we all had to figure out, got to put the seatbelt on, and so now... I think for most of us, when we get in our car, we reach over and grab the seatbelt. I know I do. I reach over and grab my seatbelt and put it on before I even realize I've done it. I, I, you know, I, it's just instinctive. It's, it's muscle memory. It's something that we just do over and over. The book of Psalms is designed to give us spiritual muscle memory so that what we say to God in a wide range of circumstances can come from the Psalms, whether we are full of joy and wisdom or whether we're walking through darkness and sorrow. There is a Psalm for every situation, which brings us to Psalm 22. That's where we'll be today, Psalm 22. And I want to talk for a moment about the contradictions of life. We find those in Psalm 22. When you come to Psalm 22, it's like a missed note. It's, like, it's almost like getting punched in the nose a little bit. It's striking. Psalm 22, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. And you you read that and you start thinking, are we really allowed to say stuff like that to God? I mean, that just seems, I mean, is that the kind of muscle memory God wants us to build up to be exercising in his presence? The answer to that is yes. Yes, it is. It's a little shocking, but yes. The shock is even greater when you notice the position of Psalm 22, how it's nestled between Psalm 21 and Psalm 23. It's sandwiched between these two psalms that are full of trust, full of hope, full of joy. And then, and then in the middle, you get Psalm 22. Psalm 21, listen to how Psalm 21 reads. The king rejoices in your strength. Lord, how great is his joy in the victories you give. You have granted him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. 
The rest of the psalm goes on in that, that joyful, hopeful mode. And then, of course, the verse after Psalm 22 is Psalm 23. It's probably one of the most famous passages of Scripture in all of the Bible, um, so much so that many times when I do funerals, I, I will, the text will be the 23rd Psalm because it's so familiar to people. And, and you know, it's just such a famous passage. We're familiar with these words. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. And it goes on in that beautiful, trusting, peaceful vein. But Psalm 22, sandwiched between the joyful, trusting Psalm 21 and the hopeful, trusting, peaceful Psalm 23 is surely a reminder to us that something is, you know, sometimes it's worth saying, my God, why? Right? Like there are those moments in life when you, that's, that's all you've got. All you've got is a great big question mark and you've got so many things um, that you, you want to say. And, and you, you think to yourself, can it be as sacred to say that as it is to, to say the Lord is my shepherd? And the answer is yes. Yes. Then there are the contradictions of within Psalm 22. There is this really strange pattern of contradiction um, through the first four stanzas of the psalm. And each verse is separated by this but yet kind of language. You see that a lot, but yet. The opening verse is all despair. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then the, the third verse comes. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and, and you delivered them. This is a beautiful um, affirmation of God's faithfulness to his people in Israel in the past. And, and I think probably this is a reference to Exodus when, when Moses brought the children out of Egypt and, and the psalmist David is, is remembering that. Surely that's on his mind. It's likely that David has some of his own conquests and battles in mind and he's remembering how God has been faithful and, and seen him to the, uh, a successful conclusion in war, and you read that and you think, yeah, it's probably good to remind ourselves of God's objective faithfulness. To just kind of tell yourself, yes, he is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Christ did come to, to live and to, to die and to raise again. And I know in my head, and it's worth saying out loud, because these things can be anchors. Here's what I know, and I tell you this all the time. The wind is going to blow in life. It's going to rage in your life. And when the wind starts to blow, you had better be anchored. You had better have some moorings. Otherwise, you're going to be tossed about and you're going to be flung and you're really not going to know what, which end is up. And then just when you think the psalm has turned the corner and it's all going to be joy and praise, <laughs> the next verse comes and it contradicts it. Look at verse 6. But I, but, there's that but, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. God might have been faithful to Israel in the past, but King David in the psalmist here doesn't even really feel like he's a part of Israel. He doesn't even feel like he's a part of the human race. He refers to himself as a worm. 
But then we get, in verse 9, yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. See, he's trying to remind himself of the goodness of God in his past, but in his own birth and in his own upbringing, he's remembering God's faithfulness to him. It's possible that somebody feels just like this psalm, that that life is just full of contradictions. In our heads, we know God's goodness in the Bible, and it's a good thing to affirm, just like the psalmist does, but then there's there are days when you just feel abandoned. You feel abandoned by friends, you feel abandoned by family, you feel abandoned by your health, you feel abandoned by God. But Psalm 22 is gifting us with words to express how we feel about the contradictions of life, and we're able to do that straight to God. The Lord wants to hear every feeling you have. And he has given us the Psalms and, and, and many others so that we can have the muscle memory to speak back to God when we encounter the contradictions of life. And? So with all that on the table, the psalmist finds the energy to offer up a petition for life, which is the third thing we come to. Now, I'm going to read a, a, a clump of verses. Um, it's going to be kind of long, and as I read them, I just want you to, I don't want you to try to, you know, draw, you know, I want you to listen, but I don't want you to try to uh, be analytical about it. I just want, just let the words wash over you. Just listen to the cadence. Listen to what he's trying to say and the range of his anguish. You're going to hear some psychological and physical and spiritual anguish. And then he's going to make his plea, his petition to God to grant him deliverance. And really, when you hear what he says, what you hear him saying and pleading for is God's presence. So listen as I read this. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open, their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. It just sounds like just so, so painful and hurting. Verse 16, dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouths of lions. Save me from the horns of wild oxen. The situation just sounds unimaginable. One might even say, hopeless. But he still asks for God's deliverance and his presence. Now let me, let me confess something to you this morning. I feel like sometimes asking God to intervene in certain situations 
is beyond my level of faith. You ever feel that way, or is that just me? You ever go to talk to God about something and you just feel like you don't have enough faith to ask what you're really asking? I mean, I talk to many of you. I love you. Didi and I love you. And, and when I talk to you and you tell me, you know, I, I, you just, I, there's a lot of things going on among us right now. Sickness, just problems, just things. And when you tell me those things, and, and you know, I'll, sometimes I'll pray with you in the back. Sometimes, you know, if you were in a, maybe in a quiet moment, I'll pray with you. I certainly pray for you when I'm out on my own, driving, doing stuff. I'll, you'll come to mind. I'll think about your situation and remember our conversation. I'll just offer a you know short prayer. And, and there's a lot of times when I do that, I just feel like I lack faith. Um, there's so many problems in the world. Sometimes it just seems impossible to change circumstances. And it's, sometimes it's hard to change people and change their hearts and their minds and um, you know sometimes um, it's hard to change my heart and it's hard to change my mind and my actions and sometimes uh, you know I find myself praying something along the lines of God this is the thousandth time that I've asked you for the same thing and you just wonder you know God has got to be sick and tired of me by now because I'm sick and tired of me And yet Psalm 22 reminds us, keep telling God your needs. Keep offering up your petition for life. Jesus taught the same thing in his gospel. In Luke, the 18th chapter, we, we read this. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them. And I want to make sure you, you get this. I highlighted this. To show them that they should always pray and not give up. That's why he told this parable trying to teach a lesson. I want you to pray. You should always pray and not give up, even when you're tempted to give up. Because you, you know, I'm not going to call on you and have you raise your hand and say, yeah, I do that. But I know you well. I know how we are as people. We get tempted to give up. We get tempted to think, God is not listening to me. I'm tired of asking for this because he's not, he's not giving me what I want. want. I, I get it. And Jesus told this parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Verse 2, he said in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. So he's a wicked judge. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea. So in the parable, this woman keeps coming to this wicked judge, and she is relentless in her request. And she basically, what Jesus says is, she wears this wicked judge out. She just wears him down, keeps asking, keeps asking, kind of like your three-year-old. Just keeps asking, right? Mommy, can I have you know, a sippy cup? No. Can I have a sippy cup? No. Can I have a sippy cup? Shut up. Here's the sippy cup, right? They just wear you down. Now, Jesus, let me make sure that we, we, I get this right, because Jesus is not comparing God to a wicked judge. I think the point that Jesus is trying to make is, if this woman in this story is able to wear down a wicked judge who's not in any way inclined to give her what she wants, how much more should we be willing to carry our petitions to God who is not a wicked judge, who is someone who loves us and is inclined to, to be benevolent toward us? How much more should he intervene then and give us the deliverance and presence that we want? God may have reasons for not giving us what we want when we want it. But Psalm 22 and Jesus both encourage us to continue to pray and to not 
give up. But even if God does not give us the specific request that we ask of him, what he does promise ultimately will go far beyond our wildest longings. And that is where Psalm 22 really concludes. When you read the 22nd Psalm closely, it's not exactly clear whether or not the psalmist ever actually got the things that he was crying out for. Because the psalm shifts from a personal situation to more of a universal thing, and we get God's promise of life. So now I'm going to read the the second half clump passage, and I want you to listen to how the horizon expands from his personal dealings to more of a corporate thing, to to something that encompasses uh, more people. Pick up in Psalm 22, verse 22. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the future great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows." The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to people yet unborn, he has done it. That's a really interesting line, that last line. I want to highlight that for you. He has done it. The psalmist is talking about the future about how the poor are going to be satisfied, justice is going to fill the earth, when all the nations will declare their worship of God. He says dominion belongs to the Lord. He says he has done it. The psalmist is so confident in what God has promised the whole world that he can speak on that future event as if it has already happened. He knows the future will far surpass and repay the the present in a beautiful and spectacular way. We've all had those things that we call nightmares. You'll know what I'm talking about when I talk about being asleep and you're in the middle of a dream that is so bad that when you wake up, you're kind of checking body parts. You know what I'm saying? Making sure you're not breathing. You're so thankful to be awake because, you know, I've had those dreams about my wife. I've had those dreams about my kids my parents, you know, that something really bad is going on and I've lost them or something bad's happened. And, and you know, you, you, then you wake up and you realize kind of you're out of breath and it's like, man, that was a dream. I'm so thankful that was a dream. Right? Have you ever had that? So have you ever had that happen where you're in the middle of the dream and you kind of know you're dreaming and you can't wait to wake up? Because you're thinking to yourself, this is not real, okay? This, this can't be real. I know I'm dreaming. I'm going to wake up any minute and I can't wait till I wake up. Now, I'm not saying that our sufferings in the here and now are just dreams. 
some of you could get up here and, and testify as to all of the sorrow and hardship that you've had. We could all do that. We've all got stories that we could get up and we could talk about, you know, just how painful life can be from time to time. Here's what I'm saying. There will come a day in God's kingdom when our pain will be answered more completely than waking up to a new day. It'll be more joyous than that time when you wake up from a bad dream and you realize, oh, I was just dreaming. There's going to come a day when we step out of all of this and what God has waiting for us is going to be so beautiful and so wonderful, we won't be able to believe how good it is. This is why the Apostle Paul, a man who suffered terribly in his life, could write these famous words from Romans 8. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. God's future for us and for creation will eclipse the present like waking up from a nightmare. Fyodor Dostoevsky lived from 1821 to 1881 And he is another man who suffered famously. He was a Russian intellectual and novelist. He wrote Crime and Punishment. He wrote a book called The Brothers Karamazov, which I've read. It's really thick and and deep. Um, Dostoevsky says with 100 words what you and I would say with 20. Okay, it's kind of that kind of book. But it's, it's a book everybody should read. I would recommend that you get the brothers Karamazov and read it. It's interesting. He wrote The Idiot. The man had been brutalized. He had been in, in uh, hard labor camps for a, a large portion of his life, and he bore the scars from being in those labor camps. In fact, when they found him dead in his St. Petersburg apartment, they found the New Testament resting in his lap. He had been reading in his final moments and clinging to God's plan for his life and his future. In the novel Brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky puts some of his hopes and dreams onto one of his characters, and I want to read that to you. It says, like a babe, I trust that the wounds will heal, the scars will vanish, that the the sorry and ridiculous spectacle of man's disagreements and dashes will disappear like a pitiful mirage, and that in the end, in the universal finale, at the moment Universal harmony is achieved. Something so magnificent will take place that will satisfy every human heart, allay all indignation, and enable everyone not only to forgive everything, but also to justify everything that has happened to men. Or as Psalm 22 said it, the poor will eat and be satisfied. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. Dominion belongs to the Lord. God's promise of life will eclipse our pain. We will wake up from a nightmare one day in God's new day, and we will say with the psalmist, he has done it. The psalmist knew a lot. There are some things he didn't know, but what he did know is he, he He knew some of what he'd written. He knew that the Psalms were songs for life. 
He knew the contradictions of life. He knew that he could offer petition for life, and he knew of God's promise of life. But there's one thing he didn't know. He didn't know in the future that God would give himself for us, his life for ours. Here's the most incredible thing, I think, about Psalm 22, and that is what it ended up meaning to Jesus. Like all Jews, Jesus grew up praying the Psalms, and centuries later, Jesus would be reading those Psalms. They were central to his devotional life, and you just wonder how many times Jesus came to Psalm 22, and this eerie feeling came over him, because in his mind, he's thinking to himself, that's my Psalm. That's me, that's my Psalm. The suffering of the poet would one day be visited upon Jesus. The parallels between the crucifixion and Psalm 22 are simply amazing. If you lay Psalm 22 alongside the gospel account of the crucifixion, it is truly striking, and I want to do that for you this morning. Psalm 22, verse 7, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say, let the Lord rescue him. The same thing happened to Jesus on the cross, Mark 15. The chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him, and among themselves he said, and, and among, mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. In Psalm 22, the garments of the poet are divided up. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. Then you come to Mark 15. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. Metaphorically, the psalmist wrote, they pierce my hands and my feet. Matthew 15, Mark 15, we, we read, they crucified him. Jesus made all these connections obvious because among his final words were the opening words of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Later in Mark 15, we're told Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The words of Psalm 22 on the lips of Christ as he died for us. And right there on the cross, God in Christ entered our pain. He experienced betrayal, injustice, and torture right up to his final breath. His love for us so great that he gave his life for ours for our deliverance and our forgiveness. Whatever our suffering means, it can't mean that God doesn't care because God has shown us his heart on the cross. God can comfort those who suffer, not just because he is all-knowing. God can comfort those who suffer because he's experienced all the things that we go through. He knows what it's like. We looked at this last week. Our God can forgive every wrong, not just because he is benevolent, but because on the cross, he has atoned through his own blood for our wrongdoing. We, we talked about that during communion. God can be trusted to fulfill his promise of life for all creation, not just because he says so, but because Christ has been raised from the dead. Jesus didn't just experience the suffering of Psalm 22. He fulfilled the promise of life in his own resurrection. And just as the psalmist said, he has done it. So Jesus, in his final words, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head 
and he gave up his spirit. And all of the promises of God were fulfilled. May Psalm 22 and all of the Psalms, even those of lament, bring peace to your soul. I would like to pray a prayer of blessing over you before you leave this morning and the band comes out. Let's pray. Father, just to still ourselves long enough to recognize you as sovereign God and to recognize that you have experienced everything we go through. There's nothing that touches us that has not touched you. All the range of emotions that we go through, our frustration, you understand where all that comes from. Father, we confess there are times that we get frustrated with you because it seems like you don't hear what we want. It seems like you're not giving us what we want. And Lord, sometimes it's just we need to recognize that we are children who don't know what you know. And so, Father, we confess our frustration. We confess our lack of faith at times. But, Lord, in these moments, I just want to ask, as these people get ready to go out and encounter a world that is oftentimes hostile to their faith, I pray that they would know your peace. And I pray that they would know your presence. And I pray, Father, that those two things would empower them in ways that they can't even explain to encounter a world that is many, many times hostile and contrary to what you want from us and that we would not give up and we would not turn away, but that we would be faithful in our service to you. We love you, Father, and we have come this morning to worship you and honor you and pray that such has happened in this place. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And all God's people said.